Hello, and welcome to Theories of Change, a podcast about climate change and the various strategies and approaches to addressing this global challenge. I'm your host, Sarah Ladislaw. We will be talking with experts about how to get from where we are today to a more manageable climate for future generations. We wasted 20 years, frankly, trying to do stuff that was obvious was going to fail. And now we're doing Paris, and a lot of people are calling it bottom-up, but I think actually that's the wrong concept. That the, the right concept is a mixture of bottom-up or decentralization, and then centralization, and you need that for incentives and for learning. Today, we continue our series with a discussion with David Victor. David is a professor of international relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at UC San Diego, where he also directs the Laboratory on International Law and Regulation. David is a recognized expert on the science of climate change, as well as the policies and regulations used to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, particularly as they apply to industry and the energy sector. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of experimentation, learning, and positive feedback loops in the process of making operational and technological advances in greenhouse gas emissions reduction. We talk about his thoughts on what has worked well and not so well in the history of multilateral engagement on climate change. David also talks about the importance of differentiating between the role of analysis and advocacy in the common cause of tackling climate change. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, David, thanks very much for joining us today on Theories of Change. Well, it's great to be with you. So, David, you've been working on climate change from a variety of perspectives, thinking about the legal dimensions, the technological dimensions, the political economic dimensions for quite a long time now. Where do you, as a starting point right now, characterize where we are relative to the overarching challenge? Well, if the overarching challenge is stopping climate warming, which is what's in the Paris Agreement, it's what everybody's been talking about, I would say that we're not very far along. We have gotten very good at talking, very good at going to meetings, not very good at doing doesn't mean that there aren't things going on, but the things are, are mostly in isolated parts of the global economy. And, you know, there's a very interesting study that Jesse Jenkins and some others were involved with where you look at different parts of the world and what are the carbon prices attached to emissions. And what you see is carbon prices that are somewhat close to the social cost of carbon only exist in, you know, a percent or so of the global economy, depending on how you measure it. And 90% or so of the global economy has essentially zero price. So it doesn't mean that people are doing nothing. But it means the overall level of effort right now is pretty small. We've seen some places with shallow decarbonization, but deep decarbonization, 60, 80, 100% reductions in emissions, don't really see that anywhere outside of Denmark and a few other places. So a lot of people have a perspective that we either lack the technology for this change, we lack the political will or the political systems for this change. What, in your view, are some of the biggest systemic blockages to getting the level and pace of change that is required? Yeah, I think this is where the kind of chatter, the commentariat is really even most disconnected from what needs to happen to address the problem. First, for a long, long time, people thought law was going to be a solution. International agreements, binding agreements, especially national laws and regulations and so on. But I think people forget the law is frankly kind of overrated. The law is endogenous to what people are willing and able to do. And that's especially true when you're dealing with an international problem where the commitments that countries make in international agreements, especially when they're binding agreements, those commitments reflect what they know they can actually deliver on. If agreements are non-binding, we have some evidence that countries will make bigger stretch goals. But the ultimately, what really matters is effort. And this is also an area where I think 
the commentariat has really kind of missed the story because it's both a technological problem and a political problem. But when people talk about political will, they talk about it in a way that's kind of static. Imagine people wake up, they have breakfast and they have political will or they don't have political will. And then, you know, on they go on with their day. To me, what's really striking as somebody who studies the history of technology is how political will changes. It changes as people learn more about the problem, but it also changes maybe even more as people learn about the technologies and the solutions. Things that used to be look hard, look easier, and also the interest groups that look to be completely arrayed against doing something. Now, suddenly those interest groups are fragmenting because you get some of the incumbent firms who want to change and cut emissions, in part because they're worried about the ongoing license to operate. You get new firms that emerge. And that's, I think, the real story. It's a dynamic political story where it's the technology and the politics that co-evolve. And that then determines what we call political will. It frankly determines what's feasible with the law. And I think that's my theory of change. It was really interesting because I think you've incorporated learning into a critique of a conversation that we're having now where I, you know, on a personal level, get a little bit frustrated where people say, well, you know, everything we tried in the past was wrong. But on one level, a lot of the things we tried in the past were about building this comfortability with the concepts and the pathways. And, you know, like there's there's this narrative out there that, well, the science failed, right? A scientifically based approach failed. It's like, well, if I rewind myself 15 years ago, nobody came to the science as concluded as they do today, right? And so this function of learning along the way, I think is really important to remember about sort of the ecosystem that we live in today. What do you think are some of the biggest lessons that we've learned along the way so far that should inform our strategies going forward? Well, I think we've learned a couple things. The first is that the more transformative you want to be, the less you know. And so when you don't know what you're doing, but there's a commitment to go in a direction, then you need to, in effect, run experiments. And I think there's a whole tranche of social science literature that revolves in part around a colleague and friend of mine, Chuck Sable. And Chuck and I, in fact, are writing a book called Experimentalist Governance Applied to the Climate Change Problem. And the whole logic is that there are powerful motivators for firms and governments to go in a particular direction, in this case, deep decarbonization. And those motivators are fear of failure. They are for firms fear of loss of license to operate their fear of onerous regulation, a whole variety of things. They help explain why, frankly, European energy companies are doing a lot more on this front than American energy companies. So we understand quite a lot about the the incentives that motivate these actors to go off and, and experiment. But to me, what's most interesting about the process is this combination of decentralization. So you decentralize the experiments and the experiments are really collaborations between business and government testing a variety of different ideas. But then you centralize the learning process. Because otherwise you have just kind of chaos. And so there's been this kind of feeling in the international diplomacy around climate change that we tried top-down diplomacy for a long time with Kyoto and so on. That was guaranteed to fail. It failed. We wasted 20 years, frankly, trying to do stuff that was obvious was going to fail. And now we're doing Paris, and a lot of people are calling it bottom-up. But I think actually that's the wrong concept. The right concept is a mixture of bottom-up or decentralization and then centralization when you need that for incentives and for learning and so on. So I think that's going to set the pace. It's the degree of experimentation that will determine how quickly we can decarbonize. And I I do think that a lot of the commentariat has really overstated the role of science here. It's not that the science doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm a climate scientist. A lot of other climate scientists, I'm appointed in a fabulous institution that is uh, one of the world's leading climate science institutions, the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. So climate science is really, really important. But to me, it's the science doesn't tell you what to do. The science doesn't tell you that there's some bright line out there that we know about 
that we shouldn't cross. The science tells us that there are impacts from climate change right now, especially on the energy ecosystems. There are worse impacts in the future in different areas, and there's a kind of a whole gradation. So it doesn't really tell us what to do. It can help orient us a little bit if we think about the costs and benefits, but there are huge uncertainties there. And I think many of the areas of climate science, in fact, the more we look at it, the more we realize our air volumes are bigger. And sea level rise is a good example of that, where over time, the estimates of sea level rise, which used to be really narrow, have now gotten larger because we've learned more bad things that can happen faster in the area of sea level. So I think people who are looking to the science for certainty to tell us what to do have a completely wrong model of how science actually operates. So I want to pick up on something you said, David, about this sort of, it's not top down, it's sort of outside in where sort of learnings get disseminated. And you've written some interesting papers on whether there are examples about that through history that have applied. So I'd love to talk to you about that. But also, what does that mean for how we organize ourselves towards that challenge, right? I mean, it's one thing to say that as an abstract sense, but how would we organize to sort of enable that kind of feedback loop? Yeah. So uh, first of all, a lot of examples in history, we tend not to think this way. We tend to look back at history and we have a lens set of tools where we imagine, you know, are we using regulation or are we using markets? And then we use those tools and we see what we're looking for in history. But when you think about a lot of the most transformative things that have happened in history, especially the history of environmental policy, and you look at them through an experimentalist lens, then they actually make a lot more sense. So great example, the Montreal Protocol. The folklore lesson from the Montreal Protocol is the scientists told us the ozone problem was really serious. Then all the ozone hole came along and reminded us it was really serious. And then we got serious and we started regulating and we had binding targets and timetables and we ratcheted the screws tighter every two to three years and then off to the races we go. And that model, in fact, was more or less imposed on the climate change area. When you go back and look at the history carefully, Ted Parsons in particular has done fabulous work in this area. You look at it really carefully, what's really striking is how little was known. So when the first cuts of 50% were adopted under the Montreal Protocol in 1987, it wasn't really clear what was achievable. 50% seemed achievable uh, in part because the countries that had done more already to regulate their emissions than the United States. That was when the United States was a reliable global environmental leader. were willing to do more. Europeans have not yet banned spray cans for the most part, so it was easier for them. So we set goals and then we went off and checked it out. And then we tightened things down and we had a technical process that reviewed carefully, use by use, what was feasible, what was not feasible. So you're adjusting goals in light of the experiments. And the Montreal Protocol is a great example. A lot of the history of the air pollution control in the United States, even sulfur control in the United States, which is famous in the folklore for having a big market, the sulfur cap and trade system. When you look at the whole history, what you see was experimentalism in the early days when companies are testing scrubbers, a brief period of kind of seven or eight years when there's a market that's doing a good job of optimizing, you know, using known technologies and getting firms to change their behavior using known technologies. And then that market blows up and then we're back to experimentalism. And so the whole history of it is actually a really different history. And as an academic, to me, that's been the most exciting part of the last few years of research has been to see how much of what we thought we knew, we actually don't know about how to design these systems to be effective. Can I ask a question building up that before moving on to that other question I had sort of posed, which is a lot of times I feel like some of the examples, particularly the Montreal Protocol ones and the ones you're talking about, they work because the scope of them is limited, right? Relative to what we're talking about in terms of climate change, which is broadly pretty transformative, which to me was always the anchor behind you know, why do you do things incrementally? Well, you do them incrementally so that you can learn so you don't screw up and do something that's broadly transformative and, oh, by the way, like totally wrong, right? 
So how do you deal with that tension of applying those lessons to things that right now, when you look at the rate and pace of change that's necessary for climate, you know, dealing with the climate challenge, they're just kind of apples and oranges in some ways. Yeah. So they're apples and oranges in the sense of the scale of the problem and the consequences and so on. And that, you know, this means the level of effort is going to need to be higher. Uncertainty is greater. The interest groups that are organized for fit to, for the system to fail are more powerful, but also the interest groups as they learn about their interests that are organized for success also get more power. I don't like the concept of wicked problems. A lot of people call this a wicked problem. They're actually quite understood that, but as best I can understand it, it's a problem in some sense that's overdetermined for complexity and failure. And when you look at the structure of the climate problem, there's no question it's got a political structure that's really inconvenient. You've got high upfront costs that affect existing industries that are very well organized politically, and they know who they are, and they're going to organize against you, and they're going to imagine the costs are going to be even worse, and they're going to get everybody ginned up around that. And the benefits are mostly in the future, although the future turns out it's coming faster than we thought. They're mostly in the future, and they're mostly in other countries. So here you've got a problem that has high upfront costs for the countries that are the biggest emitters, distant, uncertain benefits, mostly for other populations. It's not surprising that we've kind of failed when we think about the problem in that kind of structure. So there's no question that climate is a much harder problem than, than ozone and some of the other acid rains and the other problems we've addressed. But I think the other thing I'd say is when you look to history of these transformative changes, especially transformative changes that are going to be guided in part by policy, they happen by taking really big woolly problems and breaking them down into smaller units. And that's where incrementalism actually matters because you can't imagine how the entire system is going to operate if you completely transform and remove carbon emissions completely. Nobody can do that. It's unknowable. But you can imagine what the light-duty vehicle transportation might look like and what a charging. And right now, we're thrilled about electric vehicles. We used to be thrilled about biofuels. Before that, we were thrilled about hydrogen. Then we had electric vehicles, so they're going to watch out for the fads. Right now, it looks like electric vehicles will be the winner, but you know, we got to keep on top of that and make sure we don't overback one winner and not you know, lose sight of some of the other winners. Hydrogen could turn out to be very important, probably not so much for light-duty vehicles, but for heavier vehicles and some industrial applications. And so you take this big problem that's kind of daunting and you break it down into smaller units. And so the energy transition, as we often call it, which kind of makes it sound like a friendly walk in the park, which is really a revolution, <laughs> the energy revolution that we're talking about is really a whole series of revolutions where the political economy and the technologies are different sector by sector by sector. Back to that question about how we organize in practice. And I guess there's maybe two levels to that question. One is how do you organize within the confines of a domestic economy? Is that the right way of thinking about this? How do we organize multilaterally? Is that the right construct? How do you think about those things? I had the great pleasure over the last year of working with Simon Sharp, who's now part of the COP26 host, the UK government's hosting COP26 that we're going to be hosting this fall. Unless you've been living in an undisclosed location for a long time, you know things are going, not going well in the global <laughs> health system. We're going to have it next fall. And Simon's part of that team. Frank Heels, who's a fabulous historian of technology, and I, starting just about exactly a year ago, started working on a project that we released in Madrid with the Energy Transitions Commission about how to accelerate the transition, the energy transition, and how to accelerate deep decarbonization. So, and that study is really about working sector by sector breaking a big problem down into smaller units, recognizing that the politics and the technology are different in different units. Some sectors are moving along reasonably well, like electric power, others, steel, plastics, cement, and so on, much earlier stage and so on. But I think that's key to understanding the answer to your question about what's the role. How do we do this? Do we do this at a national level? Do we do this internationally and so on? I think 
there are some countries that can make a lot of progress on their own because they have a large enough home market. The United States would be an example of that if we had a better federal organization. I'm a little skeptical that individual states are going to have enough scale to be able to do that, but some do, in particular on renewable power in the United States. China, in a handful of areas, uh, advanced chemistries around cement, some carbon capture and storage, and so on. The Chinese themselves can make quite a lot of progress. But I think what's really interesting is that many of these missions, like how do you make zero carbon steel, require that you test a lot of different ideas because we don't know whether it's going to be direct electric reduction, it's going to be hydrogen reduction, it's going to be carbon capture and storage on conventional uh, steel mill technologies. We just don't know. We haven't tested these things at scale. We don't have the systems operating. So you've got to test enough to, to, to see how the system performs. And that requires inter international cooperation um, because you want to spread the risk. And you also need to create a big enough market. If, you, if, if governments can, can, can assure a, a low carbon steel producer that there's going to be a market for that product, which is one of the big roles of government, uh, then you're going to see more private investment co-invested with, with, with the public sector. And so that's going to be an important role for international cooperation. But to me, what's most interesting about that kind of international cooperation is it's the opposite of the Paris or UN kinds of systems where you have everybody in, everyone's hugging everybody else. Like social distancing now, so nobody's hugging anybody, but <laughs> they're all together creating consensus. And in these areas, you need the opposite. You don't want consensus amongst a big group. What you want are a small group of players that actually do things and create markets inside that group that make it compatible for other members to want to join the club. And that's, in some sense, the way Mission Innovation was created. It was a big effort to boost energy R&D, but also to lay out roadmaps and key technologies. And I think that's the right kind of logic. And I think one of the areas of progress is that we're seeing more and more governments and firms talk this way. We're seeing more money organized this way. Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, good example of that. So I think that's actually an area of a lot of progress. It just takes a long time for that progress to be seen in, in actual technology. Yeah. So I want to ask one question on that really quickly. So to play devil's advocate, you know, why wouldn't sector-based groups like this just sort of go to their least common denominator output, right? I mean, we had something like this in the Asia Pacific Partnership under the Bush administration, which was essentially, you know, let's pick voluntary targets, act as best we can, but it won't be as ambitious as folks think the activity needs to be. How do you guard against that kind of political dynamic within those sector-based groups? Yeah, well, it's a really important question. And, you know, it's interesting because the U.S. government has been part of several initiatives that were the opposite of the big global UN compacts, the U.S. Country Studies Program, which was in the 90s, back when the U.S. was very concerned about the direction of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. We had a Country Studies Program, which was designed to invest in countries and build up capacity and start to do projects and so on. When the United States bailed from Kyoto, which I always thought was inevitable, we did it in a horrible way. Uh, and then along came September 11th. And so we got a few years of kind of a free pass because everyone was worried about other things for understandable reasons. But when the United States finally re-engaged on climate, having rejected Kyoto, it did this Asia-Pacific partnership. And, and these were the right ideas in principle. And then the United States never invested. If our goal genuinely was to create an alternative vision that would attract attention and move the needle and do something that is a complement to the global process, but really gets things done, we failed because we did not invest in those. I think it's interesting to me that the European Union in particular is now doing something very similar. We're going to see a relaunch of mission innovation next year, plausibly something very similar. The report that we put out in Madrid is the same kind of vision of smaller groups of countries 
working with firms, actually getting things done. I think this is actually one of the most important roles for the NGO community. You look at um, airlines and aircraft manufacturers, they aren't at the International Civil Aviation Organization laying out a plan for cutting emissions over the long haul because they had nothing better to do. And so why not just go to the ICAO and talk a lot? They're doing that because they're worried about losing access to markets. And that threat has been made credible by the threats in particular from the EU around access to the European market, inclusion of uh, aircraft emissions and the emissions trading uh, system in, in the EU and so on. And so we have a big role in civil society and also in the analyst community to draw attention to and then to impose pain or threaten pain conditional on effort to firms and sectors that don't do something, which is part of the kind of sledgehammer incentive that motivates them to go search for alternatives. But now we have a big obligation to make sure that when they're doing that, that what they're doing is actually genuine. And I think this is an area of tremendous danger right now in climate policy, because you see a lot of firms and a lot of sectors that are developing schemes where they don't really know how to cut their own emissions. So they're gonna rely heavily on offsets, nature-based solutions and a variety of other things. And I think the track record with those offsets is frankly pretty dismal. Having gotten everybody to the table to work on things, at least before the pandemic, that they don't work on the wrong thing because they, they focus a lot of attention and money on bogus offsets. So there's two additional things I want to talk to you about. One is obviously the U.S. has been playing a different role in sort of global climate negotiations and global climate efforts over the last several years. And for a lot of folks who are pushing for a Biden administration, they're looking for kind of a moment of coming back to the table without getting too editorial. You know, there's a lot of people who are looking for big, shiny objects, big leadership objectives, you know, new big initiatives and things like that, which is good. But you've also written a bit about sort of leadership versus followership and what we actually need in some of the actualization of these efforts. Could you just talk through that a little bit? Because I think it would be helpful to understand what you mean by that. Yeah. So I think this is key to understanding the, the central challenge in climate change. And this is particularly important for the United States right now. So we have a change in administration. First hundred days, it's going to be a lot going on. We'll rejoin Paris. We'll be going to international meetings. Well, with social distancing, I guess. We're doing all kinds of things saying we're in. I think we'll do that and that's fine. I think the rest of the world actually wants to see something different. I think they want to see that the United States is credible because the credibility of the country on so many fronts is low. And it's not just because of the Trump administration. It's actually a problem of political polarization. It's a problem of relying heavily on executive orders and administrative action instead of legislation. You know, that's an age old problem, but it's gotten worse because of polarization. And so in that kind of environment, whether the United States is actually at the table in a serious way or not is a big question. This is where the states have played a big role. I think you know, there's a, this terrific report Bloomberg released in Madrid also around the We Are Still In initiative, which has this wonderful chart in it showing the number of state-based initiatives before the Trump administration came in. And then this kind of surge of activity precisely because, at least in, in the blue parts of the country, it's popular now to do the opposite of what the federal government is doing. And so we need to find ways to mobilize all of American society to demonstrate that we're credible, that you know, we actually as a country are still in. And I think that's going to be the really critical challenge for the new administration. So you've mentioned COVID-19 a couple of times. Obviously, it's the reality that we're living in. It is one kind of disruptive change. But as you know, our conversations about 
theories of change in, in tackling climate change is all about discontinuities and disruptions. What kind of discontinuities or disruptions do you think would be particularly helpful and or harmful to realizing some of these climate objectives? Obviously, COVID-19 can be included in there, but there could be others as well. Yeah, so this is, I think, where leadership and followership really comes in squarely, because if you take a step back, go back to the year 1990, when international diplomacy on climate change kind of first got really geared up and ask yourself what fraction of world emissions were coming from countries that would end up being reliable or, or political jurisdictions that would end up being reliable leaders. And the answer is maybe a third to a half and depending on how you define leadership, maybe more than half. And so had we in 1990 set up a really effective system by itself, the leaders would have had a big leverage on the global problem, not full leverage, but big leverage on the global problem. And then what's happened over time is the leaders have done stuff to control their emissions. They've also grown more slowly because they're mature economies. The countries that are more skeptical of climate policy, not outright opposed, although there are a fifth of global emissions that comes, almost a fifth, that comes from countries that want the system to fail. But most of the growth in emissions has come from, from countries that are more skeptical about that. And so they're not going to go out and spend a ton of their own money and other resources on climate change. They might do things that control air pollution and also benefit climate change. And so you see that Chinese program to improve the efficiency of coal and to diversify away from coal. And so all of that is beneficial, but it's beneficial in a shallow sense as opposed to a really transformative sense. And so this is the core irony in the climate problem is that the more the leaders do to control their own emissions, the less relevant they become to the overall problem because their emissions shrink even as other emissions in the rest of the world grow. And People have different ways of defining this as a prisoner's dilemma game and a collective action problem and leakage and on and on and on. But those are all basically revolving around the same concept. Why do we care about it? We care about it because what the leaders need to be doing is investing in things that scale outside their boundaries. And so it's one thing to invest a lot of money, control your own emissions and be thrilled with how great you are for the planet. But it's another thing to do that in a way that then raises the probability that those technologies and business practices you adopt at home get emulated abroad. And so it's actually influencing the picture abroad that real leadership is about. And that goes to what can you do? So for example, the more that you learn how to integrate large volumes of renewables in the grid, also continue to add renewables. A lot of the world has tiny fractions of renewables in the grid, so it's easy for them to integrate. Those are the kinds of technologies and business practices that can be emulated fairly easily. I think one of the areas that's going to be most important to watch right now is the cluster of things around carbon capture and storage and hydrogen. We've seen in the middle of the pandemic, you think like one of the worst times to make an investment decision about a multi-billion dollar complex project involving multiple countries, carbon capture and storage, carbon being shipped on ships around the North Sea and so on. You'd think in the middle of the pandemic, that'd be a terrible time. In fact, that's what Equinor, the former Statoil, Shell, Total, and the EU and the Norwegian government more or less signed off on in May, the Northern Lights project. And so you've got that project, you've got Teesside in the UK, you have a handful of other projects where if we demonstrate what these things really cost, and we bring costs down and show what a reliable carbon capture and storage system looks like, what a reliable hydrogen delivery system looks like, that's the kind of stuff that can be emulated more widely. And so I'm looking for leaders to not just wrap themselves in greenery and be thrilled with themselves and talk about how great they are, but to have some vision for how what their leadership does generates followership. So 
This begs a different kind of question, which I think is important, particularly for the political moment that we find ourselves in. There's a big conversation about whether it's really important to get everybody to understand this challenge and the phases and the things that need to happen versus just kind of a small set of people, right? It's an elite policymaker decision versus, you know, getting everybody to really understand and build political movements around this challenge. Where do you fall in that spectrum? And then particularly, like, how do you talk to people that just don't share your understanding and viewpoint of this challenge? You know, how important is that to the work that you're doing? Well, I don't think you're going to get everybody. And so I don't hesitate to say that that therefore I'm signing on for the elitist strategy because nobody wants to be an elitist. (laughs) Almost nobody wants to be an elitist. I think the goal here is not elitism. The goal here is a critical mass of firms and governments that are willing to invest and create the elements of transformation. And in some sectors, again, electric power is the leading example, but light duty automotive vehicles are now almost at the same point. In some sectors, we've now proven up the technologies enough that you can see through a variety of well-known policy instruments, carbon taxes, renewable portfolio standards, and so on, you can see known technologies really diffuse uh, diffuse into service. But you know, the recent IEA energy technology perspectives says something like three quarters of the technology we're gonna need for deep decarbonization doesn't exist at commercial scale right now. And I think that may be actually an understatement. And so to get support for something that's totally different, you're never gonna have everybody on board. When the internal combustion engine came along with automobiles and extinguished ultimately horses as the mode of transport, we didn't have widespread agreement between all the leading competing technologies for automobiles, which were the internal combustion engine, steam, and actually electric vehicles, plus the entire horse industry and everybody else. And we didn't get something like a, you know, a UN moment where everybody signed on to some agreement that we were going to get rid of horses <laughs> and just choose internal combustion engines. Instead, it was fought out literally on the streets. And so what we need are critical masses around investing in those new ideas. And I think that's where we should really focus. You asked about how do I deal with people who say, you know, well, all the science is bunk and so on. I've been increasingly actually emphasizing the uncertainty. To me, that's what really scares me here. I mean, the knowns are pretty bad, in particular, pretty bad for the poor in the world who don't have the resources to, to adjust and for unmanaged natural ecosystems, which don't operate hopefully the way humans do, which is by looking forward, gathering information, planning out, you know, you've got some fragile ecosystem inside of a mountain. It's not running its own IPCC and saying, hey, we better you know, move to another mountain or whatever. Nature solves its problems with extinctions. I'm really worried about the median impacts in those areas. But to me, the really scary stuff about climate are the tales. It's the uncertainties. And so I'm increasingly emphasizing that when you talk with people who seem to be otherwise skeptical about all the science. Can I ask you to draw that out a little bit more? So when you talk about the tales, why doesn't that just scare people away from doing anything? It does to some degree. Uh, it scares people away from doing things. And that's, a, that's just intrinsic to the processes. It all seems so daunting. And so in those kinds of environments, and you see this in some of the polling data, you see you know, people agreeing that climate is changing, agreeing that we're responsible, and then not agreeing that we should do something about it. Partly the reason they're not agreeing that we should do something about it is because that's also code for a lot of other things that travel with party affiliation or ideological affiliation, for example, concern about government. They don't want somebody to be in your living room telling you what kind of refrigerator to have and on and on and on. And I think that's where we come back in some sense full circle to the theory of change here which is 
the more you can demonstrate the technologies, what they actually cost, that it doesn't require some ghost from the government to be sitting in your living room all the time telling you what temperature your thermostat should be at and so on. The more you demonstrate real systems and you create interest groups around those systems, the more the politics realign themselves. This is the great story of renewable power. It's not just a technological story where the costs have come down and so on. We show our learning curves and we're excited about that. All of that's true, but it's a political story where this has gone from being kind of more fringy, but tolerable because it wasn't at scale, uh, to now mainstream. And this is one of the only areas of bipartisan support around energy policy is around support for renewable power. Sadly, it tends to be particularly supportive of arguably the least scalable of that, which is rooftop solar. But we've got a lot of bipartisan support around renewable power that we didn't really have before. When you do careful studies of the histories of these technologies, terrific study on the history of renewable power in Germany, what you see is that the technologies begin in very, very small groups. You know, there's some grants to some universities and a few other people and nobody else notices, including the firms that are eventually going to get crushed. Nobody notices. You work on the technology, the technology gets better, uh, and then the group gets bigger. And then they need more support or different kinds of support, but they're bigger. And that's the dynamic. That's the co-evolution of the technology and the politics that, that will change on the ground. The concern that I have and everybody should have about this is that those processes operate slowly. And because we've spent a lot of time talking and not a lot of time doing, we've squandered plausibly three decades, depending on how you count. We're in a different situation now. So we are assured to have significant amounts of climate change because you just can't wave a magic wand over all these political processes and make them run dramatically faster or different because the backlash then crushes you politically and you're back where you started. You know, that's exactly the point that I was going to ask you about, which is, you know, typically when we ask this question about people who don't agree with you, folks go to the territory of people who are just not supportive of doing things on climate. But what we're finding these days is some of the most intense disagreements are on this question of urgency and how you act in the face of urgency. Do you largely... What would you say to that sort of sentiment? You know, you, you just addressed it a little bit, which is a lot of these systems, it's really hard to make them move faster. Does that fact and the place that we're at at this point in time relative to the challenge cause you to have a different message for folks who say, but no urgency should be front and center and we should be doing things much more dramatically to address the fact that we're behind? Yeah. So my point is that political sustainability is even more important. And so I've been you know, in the crosshairs on this many, many times. A year or so before Paris, Charlie Kennell and I wrote an article, an essay in Nature about the two-degree goal. We argued the two-degree goal was not achievable at that time. We should stop talking about things that are not achievable. And also, we should talk about goals in a different way. Do globally average surface temperature turns out to be a particularly bad way to measure progress. You're measuring progress more in terms of net emissions, more in terms of ocean heat content, which is a better measure of how much heat is accumulating. So, and that helped, you know, and a lot of other people also helped trigger a debate about the right metrics. But when you look at the ground, it actually hasn't changed the politics on the ground very much. And so we're still talking about two degrees. In fact, we're talking about 1.5 degrees. And I completely appreciate the sentiment of that urgency, but we've also got to be realistic and just yelling louder isn't going to change the underlying politics, especially when the technology and the interest groups needed to advance the technology aren't there. And that's the kind of hard-nosed, sober assessment that I think we need to get from the analyst community. But when you do it, people come after you. 
People come after you if you say that you can't go immediately or very quickly to 100% renewables on the grid. We had that debate in the public eye in a very nasty way a couple of years ago. People come after you if you say that these ambitious goals like zero emissions from the US electric power system by 2035 are not achievable. We had that debate in the Democratic primary. It's back again. And people come after you when you say those kinds of things. I completely understand in the warfare of politics why they come after you, but I think there's been also a grand confusion between the warfare of politics and the sobriety of analysis. And I'm in the, the analyst business. As an analyst, I think it's actually irresponsible to be arguing for things that are not achievable. It's one thing to set stretch goals and then adjust them in light of experience. But what's happening right now is we are setting stretch goals and then in light of experience, we're making the goals even more ambitious, uh, even though the experience says that a lot of this stuff is harder. Great. Thanks, David. Listen, this has been a super interesting conversation. The way that we try to end these with folks is to talk about what kind of resources you would recommend for people who want to better understand what you use as guideposts for thinking about this challenge. So any key takeaways or documents that you'd like to recommend for folks? Yeah, so I think this report that we released in Madrid, the Energy Transitions Commission uh, and Brookings study about accelerating the energy transition, that to me, fabulous opportunity to kind of crystallize a lot of my thinking and the work that Frank and, and Simon have been doing about the role of government, the history of technology and so on. So that would be one place to really look. The other thing I think is very interesting is to spend a little time learning about advanced technology. So for example, to look at the website of ARPA-E, there is this view that the government can't get anything done. It's beset by political conflict. It only invests in white elephants and so on. And therefore, we shouldn't spend more money on government support of research, let alone do things like double, triple, quadruple that, which is really what the problem merits. Reality on the ground is totally different. The government has learned a huge amount about how to invest wisely in over-the-horizon technologies. ARPA-E is a great example of it. DARPA and the Pentagon is the defense, is the model for that. In addition to maybe taking a look at that uh, Energy Transitions Commission study, to learn a little bit about the frontier things and actually to recognize how unbelievably diverse the frontier is. It's a tremendous opportunity and very, very exciting. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's a big change even from five years ago. That's excellent. I think both of those ideas are good. I personally think the Energy Transition Report is a wonderful resource for folks. And I'm always surprised when I take a look at ARPA-E's portfolio, the range of things that they're engaged in. So I think I would also endorse both of those recommendations. So uh, listen, David, I always learn a ton from engaging with you. I think you represent the best of the analytical community. And so I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us today on this podcast episode of Theories of Change. Well, it's always a great pleasure to have a conversation with you and really delighted to be part of your series. 